and I suppose Leanne, talking about this like the specter of fa fascism, they knew some sort of coup was coming. Um, how does how does the anarchist movement respond to the the Franco coup? Well, um, in um, Barcelona, the the CNT has been. Um, well, certain activists within the CNT, particularly García Oliver and people around him in, in, in the affinity group Nosotros, which included people like um, Francisco Escaso and Buenaventura de Ruti, like the, they, were, they were known as the three musketeers of Spanish anarchism. Right. They had been very involved in um, setting up what were called defense committees. And in the first couple of years of the um, CNT's existence, I mean, sorry, the Spanish Republic's existence, the defense committees have been at the forefront of um, insurrections that had taken place, particularly those that bookended the year 1933. So like um, the one in January 1933 that ended um, with the um, massacre in Casas Viejas, mm -hmm. the one at the end of 1933 that came after the um, election victory of, of the right. So the, the defense committees have been prominent there. And the defense committees in that sense were really the, in... Um, the inheritors of the tradition of the action groups that had fought in the years of Pistolarismo. They were like quite um, like a, a semi-coordinated network of activists, but um, which operated with a degree of autonomy and what have you. After this experience and with the threat of fascism looming, there's an attempt to um, give these bodies greater coordination and like to organize them more um, specifically with an eye on the possibility of a coup. And in Barcelona, it appears at least, and this is something that um, Agustin Guillermón has written about uh, a great deal, and which you can read in, in English in his in the book Ready for Revolution, which he published with AK Press, which I'd highly recommend. Um, he makes the case, which I think is pretty convincing, that um, in Barcelona, at least, the defense committees had managed to turn themselves from this like more or less incoherent band of, um, uh, of action groups into a more um, coordinated um, sort of rapid response like units who were were, were re, um, broadly speaking prepared for the coup and ready to go into action. And indeed, you know, in the immediate like days preceding um, the the uh, the um, soldiers leaving their barracks in Barcelona on the nineteenth of July, there are, there are, you know there are um, posts people posted around the city keeping an eye on barracks in constant communication with one another there are um cnt activists in in the taxis union going back and forth between different positions um where you know people's houses and also cafes where um activists are stationed um like a union headquarters and things like that keep keeping in touch with everybody so that when the um the soldiers do leave they're ready to go into action and it's an incredible um it's an incredible operation that takes place in Barcelona. When you think that, like, um, an army going into a city, you know, or, or battalions going into a city to um, to take over, has never—I don't think has ever been successfully resisted. You know, I don't think there are many examples of that being of, 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 in history of that of that being resisted by a, a self-organized uh, response on the part of the working class. Mm. Or like it's you know it's organisations, but that's effectively what happens in Barcelona, particularly um, through the initiative of the CNC and its defence committees. Um, for example, there's somebody Julian Marino, who's not as well known as as he should be, who's an important activist in the CNC Transport Union. Him and his um, another activist in the, um, in the same union, Juan uh, Yagüe lead a raid on two boats stationed in the Barcelona harbour and um, and distribute arms that they, they find on the boats to um, activists in the um, anarchist youth organisations in the immediate in the days preceding. Anyway, so the, the, the CNT defence committees are able to, uh, to, to to show that the army that they've got a, a fight on their hands like within um, hours of the leaving the, the barracks. And that really presents you know, an opportunity for other sympathetic forces within the city, you know, to to, um, to join up, and you know, within a, a couple of days of, of street fighting, the the army is defeated. Um, and now, you know, like a lots of historians 
um, look back on it and say, well, it's because the CNC, you know, it's only in those cities where um, security forces and, um, you know, elements of the security forces join with the, the unions that the, that the coup is repressed and where that doesn't take place, um, you know, it, 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 the coup is successful. And, you know, with that reading, trying to like put a lot of protagonism back onto the security forces. But I think that really misreads the situation because, you know, without, without, especially without the initiative of um, the workers' organizations, and this is the case in every city where the coup fails, right? Mm. Without initiative and bravery and sacrifice of the, of the workers' organizations in taking a lead in fighting fascism, there is no choice for the security forces to make, right? That's, that is that um, bridgehead that they establish that allows like members of the security forces who are more sympathetic to you know who don't want a fascist takeover that gives them the opportunity to go and like you know to present themselves and and to put their arms at the disposal of of the people resisting the coup you know without that initiative and in places where it doesn't happen where place in places where the cnt and or and or the ugt are trusting of that the authorities are taking care of the situation you know places like um like granada saragotha Oviedo, you know, th th that's where it's lost, right? It's in that, that moment, those, those like that day or, of, of delay of trusting in the authorities where the situation is, is becomes irrecover irrecoverable. Or at least, you know, that's my reading of it. And, you know, in, in Barcelona, at least, you know, and, and but I think this is also true in Malaga um, and other places as well, Kijon, there's no doubt in the minds, in the aftermath of what's happened, there's no doubt in anyone's mind, like friend or foe, that it's the it's the CNT, it's the workers' organisations that have taken the lead here, that have the protagonism in the situation, and who hold in their hands um, the fate of the society. Well, that was brilliantly put. Thank you. Um, and so the, I mean the the so I've taken the I'm taking the story that most people will know, which would be like. All Wells Homage to Catalonia. I think it's probably one of the most famous books about the Spanish Civil War and probably one of the most read. But in, in the book, uh, later on, he sort of talks about um, fights between the Republic and anarchism. Um, is this sort of, is this something that happens after the sort of, they realise the, the coup from Franco has sort of failed its initial, um, initial goals, which was, you know, a quick takeover, in all the major cities or is it something that gradually happens like how does this come about uh, over the rest of the country not just in barcelona really so just to just to follow on from from danny as well you know again this the 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 the, the drive coming from the the workers movement um i think you know one of the best pieces of writing i've read on that moment isn't actually about the strictly speaking the anarchists it's it's about the ugt in madrid Mm -hmm. where, where a similar dynamic is going on and, and Arturo Barea's uh, The Clash, I think that there's this fantastic couple of chapters where, you know, around the moment of the coup, um, which I, I, I mean, I advise anyone to read the, the, his books anyway, but that, that moment where, where basically you've just got the working class of Madrid clogging the streets around the socialist headquarters, the Casa del Pueblo, crying out for arms, um, you know, I, I think he leaves you in no doubt as to where, you know, where the coup is being put down in cities like Madrid, Barcelona, you know, it's coming from, from the people. And yes, um, you know, elements of the security forces uh, and, and army get on board, but it, that drive is there. However, like in other cities in Spain, the CNT isn't dominant. I mean, perhaps in Gijón, that has its own particular, um, you know, story in the civil war, you know, many of the, the militia columns that are formed in Asturias are actually sent off to go and fight um, on the Madrid front, which is seen as the critical front early in the, in the war, which it is. Um, and then the formally kind of declared loyal uh, security forces just, just turn around and say, no, actually we're with the coup. So you get, you know, so while CN, you know, CNT strength in, in Gahan is there, actually many of them then shortly leave the city. Elsewhere, the CNT is primarily is often a minority uh, position, and they end up, you know, we, we don't get what you get in Barcelona, which is CNT dominance of 
the political apparatus basically mm. or you know the, the potential to control the state it's it's more of a case that they end up in committees mixed committees still prevalent still strong you know in madrid um and you know other areas um but they i, I don't think they 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 don't have the, the opportunity to enact the the wholesale widespread social transformations that you see um in barcelona and then into aragon in the kind of the hinterland of that of the of the the anarchist revolution during the civil war so i think i mean and there is still inter republican violence in these other areas absolutely some of which is in madrid um is kind of dampened by the pressing threat of the war which you know comes to madrid um in the autumn of 1936 so whilst the coup is kind of initially successful in about one third of Spanish territory. Um, you get the Army of Africa led by Franco marching through Andalusia, another heartland of anarchism, you know, the, the, the kind of uh, areas like Cadiz, Sevilla, you know, they, they fall quite quickly to this march of the Army of Africa up to Madrid. And, you know, you do get this, this incredibly famous and important resistance in Madrid in November 1936, um, you know, we talk about George Orwell romanticizing Barcelona. Well, many other kind of romantic tales have been told of the siege of Madrid as well, where you do get, you know, it, it is incredible. You have the, the UGT there, you have the international brigades arriving, you know, in the nick of time to plug um, an advance. You have Doruti leading his anarchist militias down from Zaragoza. And it's that's kind of seen as, you know, that's used as a symbol for the remainder of the war of Republican unity. But what Republican unity means, in effect, in, in many places, is the crushing of the revolution and the, you know, the either the assimilation of anarchists into the re-emerging state apparatus or violence against those that are that are trying otherwise. Mm. Um, and I'll hand over to Danny to talk about the specifics of, of Barcelona. Okay. Um, yeah, I think just just to add to that. Like, I think if there hadn't been um, a revolutionary situation in Catalonia and Aragon in the Civil War, it, the, 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 revo the transformations that took place in the rest of the Republican zone would still be remarkable. And I think would still like merit the, the term revolution. If you think about like um, collectivizations that took place in um, the countryside in Castile and in um, Andalusia as well, you know, remarkable um, socialization of, of some industries in, in Valencia, you know the, the levels of like work control and, and particularly like in, in terms of public order which is like where the big um conflict comes in madrid after the um successful resistance of the the nationalist push in um, november 1936 you know it's, it's hard to describe a situation as you know it's not it's not business as usual is it when workers with weapons are controlling like traffic and things like that on, on the streets and that's something that's um, that's not confined to um, uh, Catalonia Aragon by any means. But that is where, you know, as Jim said, the anarchist predominance is such that the revolution and its fate is very much tied up with the anarchist organization, particularly the CNT itself. So, um, as Jim said, you know, the, the anarchist organizations have entered like these ad hoc anti-fascist committees with other organizations in, in the first days of, of after, after the coup. But um, there is no effort made to like suppress uh, governmental institutions or organizations. And the general like sort of logic behind that is that if, um, you know, a sort of skeletal governmental structure is left in place, that might be able to persuade, you know, say Britain and France and places like that to, you know, to do business with the, the Republic um, and, you know, some kind of like subsisting governmental structure would be required for that kind of, uh, for those kind of arrangements, which, you know, it turns out is pie in the sky, right? Because Britain and France don't uh, offer that kind of support. But in any case, that kind of logic then, you know, takes on its own kind of momentum. In, in terms of like justifying a rolling back of the revolution and a reconstruction of uh, the Republican state, mm. which is, is also argued is required in order to um, centralize the militias in, and transform them into a modern um, conventional army. 
sort of like there's a logic and an argument there um on the ground what it means is that you know you you have um forces that have, have been minority forces particularly in in catalonia trying to re-establish themselves and are, are growing basically as counter-revolutionary parties you know that, that's their appeal to people right that we want to push back the revolution we want to allow you to make profits again you know we want to allow um you to trade at market value and things like this as opposed to you know um have your like prices dictated by workers organizations and there's a lot of like um sort of pretty nasty and racialized anti-working class and anti-non-catalan migrant kind of um um uh, invective in, like tied up in this in these kinds of um political processes and it's also tied up with re-establishing a, a traditional form of law and order on the streets and obviously that comes into conflict with the, the workers patrols that have been establishing um a sort of anti-fascist order if you like mm. on the streets of not just barcelona but um you know in lots of places throughout the republican zone but it's in it's in barcelona in particular where um that the return of like traditional police forces is most resisted and that's where it becomes most fractious um and gradually this you know with with several other factors as well um builds into a situation that culminates in the may days which is so memorably described by orwell as an eyewitness in 1937. Mm -hmm. um i suppose the the communist party with stalin's stalin has a big impact upon upon uh the republic is that really one of the sort of deciding factors that really pushes back against the anarchists during the civil war I mean, well, the, the Communist Party in Spain was very small um, mm. before the, the Civil War. Mm. Um, it was, I don't think it was even bigger than um, the, the PUM, which was the, in the party whose militia that George Orwell joined and mm. um, arrived in Spain. I might be wrong about that, but I think the, the, it's not much bigger. The Communist Party, if it is bigger, and the PUM is like a, a dissident communist um anti-stalinist marxist party mm. you know in the rest of europe those those tend to be much much smaller than the communist party in spain they're comparable because the communist party is, is relatively small um and spain is not really on the soviet union's radar you know there isn't even um, a soviet embassy in madrid or anything in, in 1930 wow. but the decision of the soviet union to um start providing aid to spain or like you know, selling arms to Spain. Like obviously, it's not disinterested aid, but like to start trading with the, with the Spanish Republic. Um, October nineteen thirty six, and uh, the simultaneous dis, um, organization of the international brigades through the Comintern, through the international communist parties, completely changes the sort of level of prestige um, that the communist party is able to enjoy in uh, within Spain. But you know, the fact that um, the, the the Communist Party is, is positioning itself as the the party against the revolution, right? Effectively, is is um, is the party that wants to re-establish order. It's the party that wants a conventional army. You know, it makes these kinds of um, arguments, which are present anyway in the broader sort of state apparatusism within, like. And um, some elements of the, the Socialist Party and the UGT bureaucracy and things like that. Mm. But it turns all of those kind of arguments, they're even like present to a degree within the CNT itself. And it turns them into like a kind of like organizational banner for itself that says, okay, if you are against the uh, revolution, if you think we've got to stop messing about with these kind of revolutionary experiments and, um, you know, the party's over, we're going to get back to normal and, and fight this war to the bitter end then join the Communist Party. And that's its like kind of organizational dynamism. But, um, you know, in, in practice, like what, you know, the, that, that persuasive and seductive argument that sounds like common sense, in fact, it ends up, I, I would argue, creating a lot of unnecessary um, 
uh, conflict with within, um, or maybe not unnecessary, you know, but but it creates conflict in the in the Republican zone, and um, in in particularly in Catalonia, where opposing the revolution means effectively like returning to like a free market and things like food and uh, um, supplies, is actually detrimental to the to the war effort and doesn't involve the kind of centralization that even like normal democratic capitalist states um, employ to fight war for to fight wars in the modern period. It involves like an atomization, um, so th so that like appeal like to the non-revolutionary forces in somewhere like Catalonia means appealing to, you know, empowering like grocers or empowering cattle traders. Um, you know, it doesn't. It's, it's not like a, that's not the social constituency that's going to win you a war, right? That's, that's not how it's understood. You know, in, in like in terms of like mobilization for total war, modern war. Um, you know, you need to control food supplies, like it's a basic. Um, so um, I'm not, so, so like the, so the, the, the Communist Party policy, right, although it, it, it sounds like persuasive and even like in a film like um, Land and Freedom, you know, the Ken Loach, mm, yeah. which presents a, a pro, you know, emotionally it's pro-revolution, right? The, the, the story that the individual goes through and his relationships that he makes with revolutionary militias you um, you persuaded that you know on an emotional level that to support the revolution when you watch that film, but the way that the arguments are expressed, right? And he has this fantastic scene where the, these arguments are laid out as people discuss whether to collectivize land in the aftermath of mm. a, a battle. The, you know, in the cold light of day, those arguments uh, that the non-revolutionaries are putting in that context sound more persuasive i think you know I've, and I've done it as an experiment like show this to students out of context this scene and say well who do you think is more convincing and they always say you know the, the non-revolutionaries but that's because i i mean i would argue that the uh, the arguments put in emotional terms but it can be put in rational terms you know that, the, the, that when you've got a revolutionary situation and um, it makes more sense to build on that and to use its like resources Mm. as best you can rather than you know put so much resources into like defeating that situation in, in order to then you know try and establish um from the from nothing basically um a conventional war effort against um, an enemy that has you know all of the all of the advantages in in the in the terms of fighting a, a conventional war mm. anyway that's kind of like getting into sort of historical debates but that's the um that's the kind of thrust of the Communist Party argument. That's the sort of basis for its support. But particularly in Catalonia, a lot of its uh, a lot of that support also comes from a more uh, instinctive or traditional hatred of the leveling socialistic aspirations of the working class and its organisations. It's a really interesting way to put it, actually. It's, uh... Because I've always heard the sort of the I thought the mainstream narrative really, and it's like, you know, the uh, but when you put it in practical terms, like trying to reestablish a whole state apparatus and a society during the middle of a war that's already gone through the the steps of revolution and has reestablished itself, yeah, that makes sense. yeah I can see exactly where you're coming from, really. Yeah, just a, a short thing. I you know I had a similar experience in teaching the civil war is. Again, it's the it's the kind of hard-headed student, you know, we, we have this image of students of being like kind of radicals and things. I've found that in in in, in seminars, it's usually me that's pushing a more <laughs> radical line. And they say, yeah, of course, the socialists uh, and the communists, you know, they have the right idea. This is sensible. You know, you've got to you've got to have order. You've got to raise the war properly. And I, and I find myself saying to them, it's like, I don't mean to spoil the ending, but, you know, this didn't work. And you know that like Britain and France didn't end up sending any substantial aid to the Republic. And, and, and what happens after the revolution is kind of defeated on the streets in May 39, uh, 37, sorry, is a slow grinding conventional war that the Republic was probably always going to lose. Mm. So it's, you know, the, the kind of hard headed rationalism, because they present themselves, the communists, as the the rationalist the the you know the sensible way to do things mm. it see, that seems to have appeal and I think that was its appeal at the time. I'll just a, a, another small point on you know the communists um, you know role in the May days and things. I think this is something that Danny has stressed as well in his work. 
whilst it's important to recognize what they're doing and it, it and it definitely is important and it's definitely dynamic i think that's the that, that's the key word that danny used there um they're not alone and there is there is a narrative of the kind of insidious communist party betraying the revolution doing all doing kind of stalin's bidding from afar like the puppet master you know they, 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 there's hints of that in orwell and it's in quite a lot of anarchist literature and also a lot of post-Civil War, kind of Cold War history as well, you see this kind of the nefarious influence of the Soviet Union. Uh, just, just to lay out that, that, you know, there is that there and they definitely have a role in a lot of the violence, particularly violence directed against anarchists uh, and the Poom, but they're not alone. You know, this is a view that's shared by lots of other sectors of the Republic. You know, like it's, it's definitely what the, the Catalan bourgeoisie want. Um, it's, you know, the judiciary, the military apparatus of Spain, you know, they, they all, you know, it's, this isn't a Stalinist plot to betray mm. the brave revolutionaries, or it's not just that, you know, mm. there, there is plenty of forces that, that want to see the end of anarchist power in, in Catalonia. Um, and yeah, the, the communists are a dynamic part of that, but they're not, they're not doing it alone. Mm. Mm. Yeah, I think that's, that's important to stress and probably we, I mean, by, by making these kind of arguments, I'm not trying to say that um, had the, um, the the revolution not been crushed, then a different outcome would have occurred in the war. That's not that's not what we're trying to posit. It's no. just to, in, um, to show some of the like the contradictions and um, and problems of like this, like as you say, conventional mainstream sort of supposedly common sense kind of point of view that you hear a lot. Mm. No. No, it's definitely, definitely true. Um, and it's, uh, it's certainly a phase that I think Spain's going through at the minute. Living here, you sort of hear a lot of history being challenged um, from, from the civil war to the transition and, and all sorts of things. Uh, how did the, the anarchists respond to, to, the, um, to the defeat in the war? How did the, the war end and how did the anarchists sort of respond? And what was the sort of end of the war like for the anarchists? Well, it's, I mean, like, like for all of the Republican sectors, it's extremely um, bitter and, um, uh, and, you know, for lots of them, you know, it ends as badly as anything could have feasibly end, you know, um, in, in arrest, torture, death. Um, the, the, I suppose, like, the, there is, the anarchists play a role in the actual denouements of the war in the sense that, um, the CNT in, in um, Madrid in particular supports the Casado coup, which leads to the um, uh, deposition of um, Juan Negrín, who'd been the prime minister from the, basically from the May days up until that point, um, like March, 1939. And um, anarchist units under the um, commander Cipriano Mera fight against communist units to like reinforce the Casado coup. You know, the logic of the Casado coup, um, you know, uh, yes, the logic of the Casado coup being that um, if, if we get rid of the communists out of the Spanish government, then perhaps Franco will be um, more willing to show mercy with the, the Republic. You know, it was obviously it was pie in the sky. Um, there was no real basis for thinking that. Um, and it, it proved like completely false. Um, but I think, you know, and, and like the current trend of hi history is to, is very pro Negrin and very, very anti Casado. But I think like in terms of like just understanding the anarchist point of view here, you know, the anarchists had um, felt and rightly so, I think that they had compromised on everything to try and like retain um, a level of unity in the in the civil war mm. and that they had given the best of their people to that battle you know um i've, I've read somewhere that 60 percent of the people who fought for the republic on the um on the on the, ba in the battle of the ebro you know a, a, a last desperate doomed throw of the dice in which thousands and thousands of people with lives are thrown away you know 60 percent of those were cnt members um, you know, and this is after any kind of influence that the CNT had had, um, you know, within the Republican zone has been utterly pushed aside. Um, and so, like, Negrin's 
um, exhortations, you know, which which were basically pure rhetoric, right? To say that we will resist, we'll continue resisting. But you know, he's saying this while supposedly uh, trying to arrange like um, evacuations and things like that, which is not in itself a bad strategy. But because he's like famously um, doing everything on his own and not communicating to like a, a, any sort of um, other like allies or like other organizations, there's a great deal of suspicion about what it is that he's up to and whether like there's going to be privileged escape routes for communists and his friends in the Communist Party as opposed to, you know, the broader re Republican um, uh, allies. So there's a lot of suspicion and also you know, this is rhetoric about resistance when it comes down to it when it, you know it's particularly when we're talking about like the, the defense of cities right which is what ultimately a kind of last ditch resistance would have amounted to had it been employed mm. you know, the possibility of that kind of what was called Numantian resistance right the sinews of that the possibilities of that being mobilized had been completely destroyed by precisely the kind of counter-revolutionary activity that you know Negrin had spearheaded you know you would you would need to rely on precisely those kind of worker mobilizations that only really the CNT was in a position to try and um, um, initiate so you know the, the, there's no faith in in that kind of rhetoric and also you know this the CNT, there's by this point there's no trust at all between the CNT and, and the communists um, within within the military as well for lots of like quite complicated reasons so the cnt involves itself in that in, in that episode which is a squalid episode right i think we can say that brings the the war to to an end um unnecessary in the sense that it didn't change anything in terms of the outcome and which left a lot of people dead right and um, but that doesn't gain for the cnt any kind of advantage whatsoever in the sense of like um, being able to escape, you know, like um, most of the key figures of the Casado coup who wanted to left um, Spain before uh, before Franco arrived, before Madrid fell. Mm. But you know, all the, um, like people like Maximo Franco, like the anarchist, um, very young anarchist uh, militant who had been fighting in the war from the beginning, fought in the May days in Barcelona as well. He was, you know, involved in those kind of operations against the Communist Party. He's there with thousands of others in Alicante, you know, the, the rat trap, waiting to see if any ship is going to come and take them out of the, the, the inferno that's um, awaiting them. You know, suffering from like aerial bombardments, just waiting for the Italian army to come. And him, and, you know, there's an extremely like moving um, episode recounted um, in the Granada, 80s Granada documentary, the, the Spanish Civil War, which is entirely available on YouTube really recommend it the last episode they talk about this you know they talked to anarchists who were there in Alicante um, and who spent um, you know in this last he talks about they talk about this last like um, example of wartime anarchist democracy and its assembly is held to decide whether they should commit suicide or whether they should um, allow themselves to be um, taken away by police and several several people did, including Maximo Franco, commit suicide. Right, looking out into the sea and saying, "This is our last, this is our last gesture against fascism." Um. So you know, utterly tragic. Um. And and lots of others like managed to get over the border into France, particularly you know with the fall of Barcelona. Um. Something like um. 80,000 uh, CNT members were uh, in France after the uh, um, fall of the civil wars and, and, you know, experienced for the most part the um, awful conditions of the refugee camps, the hunger, the humiliations, and then all of the privations that came with um, uh, Nazi occupation. M many fought in the resistance as well. And, you know, it's... Um, I suppose it's another it's another story, but um, again, a story with a lot of um, testament to the, to the ongoing like humanity commitment to culture, commitment to education of the the anarchist movement. I mean, just one example would be um, somebody called Herman Algracia, um, who wrote who later wrote under the pen name Victor Garcia. He was sixteen, I think, when the the civil war broke out in Barcelona, and then a member of the CNT already a member of an um, uh, anarchist affinity group called um, Los Quijotes del Ideal, so the, the 
the Quixotes of the ideal, you know, a classic kind of um, somebody who not had an education, been, been to work from a very young age, but who had educated himself and was committed to self-education as a result of his involvement in the anarchist movement. Um, in, the, in, the, um, in France after the, the Civil War, experiences the refugee camps, um, joins the links up with the French resistance, is then like captured, is um, on a, is, is interned initially, I think in France, but is then put on a wagon in 1944, um, headed to Dachau and manages to escape by pulling up um, the planks of, of wood on the, that like provide the floor of the wagon and like rolling out from underneath it. And if you like hear about Dachau in the final months of the, the, the Second World War, you know, he was heading towards extermination. It's absolutely appalling. Um, so by, by the skin of his teeth. But in that period, in those succession of camps that he's been involved in, he's helped produce newspapers. He's learned Esperanto. He's learned, um, he's been practicing French, practicing English. And you know, all throughout the rest of his life, he's committed to uh, anarchist publications, to correspondence, to, you know, keeping up the flame of this, of not just like the anarchism as a movement, but as an, a sort of ethical approach to, to life and to human interaction that is just testament to the human spirit, I think. Wow. Um, sorry, go on, Jim. I was just going to add, just in a, in a kind of broad sense, you know, this is a very rich and, and tragic story that Danny has played out. I mean, this plays out for, for many, many, you know, thousands of individuals, this experience of of catastrophe, of defeat, of exile, of internment in camps. And it leads the movement, I think, in the in the following decades, you know, not only to be split between those that are, that have remained in Spain and those that are in exile, but also just a, an obsession, a, a, an understandable and 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 you know, a, you know, explainable obsession, but of looking back at these moments that we've been discussing and 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 you know, and playing them out again, you know, thinking of, of 1936, you know, what did we do right and what did we do wrong? What happened in 1937 with the May Days? Who is to blame? What's responsible? What was the right position? And I think you do get a generation, again, understandably, because because they are locked out of Spain, in, in you know, many of them literally, you know, they can't return or, you know, you know, they can't participate in public life, those that are in Spain, as anarchists anyway. You know, the, the war becomes in a way almost frozen in the anarchist imagination. Yeah, so I just, I think, you know, like I said, understandably, you know, it remains a point of contention within the movement that it's very difficult to to move on from, I think, for, for many, many people. And I think that that continues throughout the Franco period. Right. And and how did the the anarchists, like, what happened to the movement under, under Franco, under his dictatorship until sort of the 1970s? Um, well, you, you have a succession of, um, of like committees formed in the underground um, that are un unable to sustain themselves and which are um, detained, tortured, um, imprisoned, um, murdered, you, you know, you name it. Um, this is that's the, the essential story of the early days of the, of the underground um, in Spain with the like a, a couple of years exception of the, the thaw that happens in the immediate aftermath of the Second World War, where Franco is worried about, um, you know, the, the United Nations coming for him, essentially. So there is like a brief period where it appears, that, you know, the anarchists are able to um, organize a bit more freely. Um, some people are released from prison, um, but this, you know, it doesn't last long. Once it once it's become clear that um, that you know there isn't there aren't going to be any like consequences for the Franco regime as a result of the the Allied victory in the Second World War, you know, it goes back to being extremely repressive in terms of uh, the anarchist movement. Then the the anarchist movement in Spain um, becomes also. It's sort of disconnected from the movement in exile. There's a split. Mm. Um, somewhat disingenuously, some of the like leading figures of the anarchist movement who had like led the um, process of collaboration with the Republican state during the Civil War in exile revert to a kind of anarchist purism and say, you know, you know, that we were wrong to have um, collaborated. Um, 
and from now on we're going to like chart a very orthodox kind of anarchist cause and everyone has to get on board with that in spain in the underground perhaps understandably in very different conditions and the thinking is that you know we need to make alliances wherever we can um, in some cases, you know, as the years go by, that does lead to some pretty dodgy connections that, um, you know, understandably the anarchist movement elsewhere would wish to distance themselves from. Um, but initially, like the way it's handled and everything is, um, leaves a lot of people disenchanted, leaves a lot of people burnt out, um, I think both within and outside of Spain. And um, because of that, like kind of, the consequences of those kind of splits, I think, makes anarchism less attractive as a, a, a as a sort of um, to to a younger generation, basically. Mm. Um, this is something that you know the older anarchist exiles lament quite frequently in their correspondence with one another, um, particularly as you get into like sort of fifties and sixties, that um, they haven't been able to bring up a new generation um, of anarchists. And this is a problem like when the transition does come about and you have like this um, resurgence of interest in anarchism that is, that is genuine and leads to a very rapid growth again of, of the CNT in the immediate like early transitional years. But you have this problem of that new um, impetus for anarchism coming partly partly through like, you know, a lot through like um, workers' struggles, but also partly through the um, counterculture and how those those work struggles interacted and overlapped in some senses with, you know, countercultural influences related to music, sexuality, and so forth, um, and which were much harder for the old guard to get on board with. And you didn't have like a kind of intermediary generation, basically, to sort of negotiate that. I mean, like, just it, perhaps it's, it sounds like superficial or facile, but like if you just think about like music, right? Most of the people I, I investigate, you know, research into, um, in, who were active in the 1930s, all their life they listened to classical music. Um, you know, they all love Beethoven or, and they love like um, Sarzuelas, you know, like the kind of Spanish mm. like sort of version of opera. Mm. And that's what they listen to. Um, now, okay, that's, it's, not, it's not a big thing, is it? Like, what kind of music? It's just a massive taste, essentially. But um, if you then go to what the kind of like music that people are listening to in the mid to late 70s, there isn't even a rock and roll generation, right? Or an R&B generation to kind of bridge that, like to like, sort of be sort of understandable to people. But you think like trying to explain like punk to a granddad without a, Be without a Beatles dad, do you know what I mean? Yeah. Without um, and I think that you can sort of expand that musical analogy to everything else as well, to every other sphere of life, you know, like the politics and to working practices, to sexuality, mm. you know, there isn't, um, there isn't a bridge, basically. And um, that's not the only reason, by any means, that the CNT is, is unable to, like, build on that initial growth in the transition period. You know, there's some really dodgy um, states activity going on as well but i do think that, you know that's a that's a big problem i mean you've got like the the famous like um libertarian days in uh, around montjuic in um, barcelona in like i can't remember what year it is but like maybe 77 in the mid to late 70s anyway um and you've got like elder states <laughs> coming back from france to deliver like these speeches, like very moving speeches about you know what they've been through and everything, and what you know how important it is to see like the resurgence of anarchism in Spain and what have you. Um, and these are people who whose approach to life is often quite um, morally puritanical, right? A lot, a lot of them are abstemious. Um, you know, they, they don't. A lot of them don't. You know, they don't believe in marriage, but they don't um, believe either in um, a sort of frivolous approach to, to sexuality. I don't know if that, if that makes me sound like an elderly person as well. <laughs> anyway, um, you know, they, they're like, they, when they talk about, like, say, free love, you know, what they mean is, like, love, right? They have, like, a real belief in, like, sentimental attachment. Mm. Um, 
<laughs> you know, where they go and do these speeches, like they head off back home and there are people like having sex outside, like in the gardens and what have you, um, you know, who see like anarchism as being um, about letting it all hang out, you know, mm. um, that kind of countercultural sort of approach to anarchism. Mm. And um, it's nothing to do with it, you know, to them, it's nothing to do with that. That's like, that is, to them, that is not what anarchism is about or has ever been about. And sort of um, making that, like allowing that dialogue to happen, would have required, I think, like an intermediary that didn't exist. Mm. And um, so, I mean, quite often regarding the transition, just talk about the transition briefly. The Communist Party is sort of seen as the, I suppose, like the the main underground party and and Commission Obreras, the you know it's like it's I suppose now it's the biggest union in in um, in Spain. It's the it's the, the Communist Union that that formed out the Communist Party following the transition. They they both play quite a big part in the transition politically, I suppose, like with um, you know making deals with the Moncloa Pacts, for instance. How did the anarchists respond to that? Well, the, um, the CNT opposed the Moncloa Accords, um, like, understandably, you know, if, like, if anarchism was to have any kind of um, independent existence in Spain, I think, you know, it needed to do that. Um, and, you know, I think in some ways, the fact that the Communist Party were involved in the, the Moncloa Accords, you know, the fact that the Communist Party, as you say, was very associated with um, the, the transition, the various pacts that allowed the transition to take place in the way it did, retention of the monarchy, um, amnesty laws and what have you, that really gives an opportunity for, for anarchism and for the CNT to be, you know, the oppositional um, voice there, I think, you know, that, that's um, critiquing that managed transition. Mm. Um, and, it, you know, it's, it's very difficult, isn't it? Like, the, I don't want, want to sound like I'm criticising, basically, an organisation um, that, for, for its strategic, you know, for the strategic decisions that people took in, in a situation that um, was very, obviously very, di very different to anything I've done myself, Ryan. But um, I think also that kind of, that, um, also it's, like, as well, I should say, it's not an area that I've like studied in, in great depth either. But um, it's unable, ultimately, it's unable to become like a, a sort of focal point um, in that sense, mm. right? That, that's able to like provide a, a moral, libertarian, and revolutionary alternative to the Pax of Moncloa. Mm. There are various reasons for that, partly um, because of internal. Uh, splits within the organization itself which I've, I've alluded to but which also um recurred with regard to like industrial strategy um ultimately leading to the, the split that you know the cgt uh, the foundation of the cgt and, and the cnt as separate organizations um the scala uh, bombing which led to a um which was probably a, an inside job that led to a police crackdown on on anarchists, um, you know, which which sorry, suggestions have probably been an inside job that was that was it was certainly wasn't an inside job in the sense of like employees of the Scala being involved or anything like that. So sorry, I shouldn't have used that term, but may well have been police um, infiltrators who um, were actually uh, carried that out. In any case, led to um, like a sort of a further crackdown on on anarchism so like this this swelling of anarchism that comes about i think through like people hearing about anarchism for the first time associating it with like this an, an incredible revolutionary history and becoming interested becoming involved like the stakes involved in becoming interested in anarchism were raised much higher partly by the like the this, the real sort of bitterness of these internal disputes which often led to violence it, it themselves and also because of the the possibility of like serious police um, repression as well, um, all of which served to 
effectively marginalised anarchism in Spanish society. Although, you know, um, as you mentioned right at the beginning of our conversation, anarchism has retained a presence in Spain probably to a greater extent than any other country in Europe. Mm. I mean, I think that's probably true. I'd, I'd, I'd agree with that. I mean, I've not been, you know, obviously I've spent more time in Spain than I have in most other countries, but I think there is that, there's definitely that cultural historical legacy that people are aware of, um, you know, even just in the basic way, the symbolism uh, of, of anarchism in the CNT, you know, has meaning in, in Spain that I think it, it doesn't have um, elsewhere. But I think, again, going back to where we started and the kind of origins and the, the kind of heyday, you know, it's, it's a very long way from that, you know, that we talked about that, that strong presence and link in the, in the working class, you know, this, this made sense on a, on a very sort of day-to-day -day level that I, I don't think, I don't think you could say that that exists, but, but the, the, the legacy of that remains important in Spain to a degree that I, I don't think you see elsewhere. Mm. No, I mean, from living here, you can just see it. Um, you know, I think in most towns you can see, you know, a, a sort of a sparkle of anarchism or there's always like a famous story of, of anarchists, you know, um, striking or, you know, during the war or the Frank, like through all the different periods of modern Spanish history, really. Um, so thank you very much for in, informing us about it. That was brilliant. I understand you both have books out. Uh, what are they called? What are they on? And who publishes them? Well, um, my book, so this is um, Danny Evans speaking. Uh, my book is called Revolution in the State. And it's, um, you know, you'd want the, the cheaper paperback version, which is out with AK Press. Uh, and yeah, my book out with Routledge, uh, unfortunately not particularly cheap, but uh, an academic prices uh, is print culture and the formation of the anarchist movement in Spain. Um, and yeah, if people have difficulty accessing that, they can always get in touch with me directly. Brilliant. Thank you very much both for coming on Silver Mesa. It's been an absolute pleasure. No worries, Alan. Thank you, Alan. Thank Thanks you. for having us. And uh, don't forget to listen to their uh, podcast. Is it every month or is it... Um... About three week turnaround we have. Brilliant. Yeah. Brilliant. Okay, thanks, guys. Thank you. Cheers.